Hello, I'm Christopher Kassan, and this is Ireland's Edge. Here in Kerry, at the very edge of Europe, our rural and coastal communities are facing great economic and environmental challenges. The dominance of industrial agriculture and the threat of climate change have forced many to reflect on how we can both preserve and create sustainable ways of life. On today's episode, we meet some of the inspiring people working on fascinating local projects, asking what future is in our fields. Ella McSweeney, who joined me earlier in this series, is presenter of RTE's Ear to the Ground, and in front of a live audience at Arden's Edge in Dingle, she was joined by the artist and activist Lisa Fingleton and local farmers Tommy Reedy and Dinny Galvin. What future is in the fields? I'm delighted to say we're joined by three farmers who can give us the answer to that. Uh, Lisa Fingleton, Dinny Galvin and Tommy Reedy. Um, Dinny, we were out this morning on a farm down by Dunquin and, and you said something uh, which was quite striking. You said we had a moderate climate here. It has changed dramatically. Talk a little bit about the Dingle Peninsula and how you have seen things change with climate. Yeah, um, I'm farming since I was 16. I'm 52 now. Um, I've seen quite a few changes, especially with the climate. Um, if I go back to probably just about 20 years ago, um, you'd have wild bees hanging from the eaves of the sheds and um, you'd have a lot of wildlife on the, on the farms as well. And um, I don't know what has happened to bees, but look, we've done, we've done something to them. Perhaps it's some of the chemical sprays or... I think we've taken their food. I think that's the biggest thing. Uh, we, we removed all the, all the ditches, all the fences on the farms. That's what we were told to do. We were, we were educated to do that. I was trained, I did my green cert. We were trained to take out all the scrub, all the fences, all the ditches, and to farm intensively. Um, it's very hard to reverse something like that if you're trained in any job to, be, to do something and to be good at it. It never goes away. It's like cycling a bike. Um, but yeah, I can see big changes. Um, I've seen swans come onto my own farm. I go back to my youth. Uh, you would never see swans on the farm. Uh, there in the month of October this year, we saw wild roses budding out in the month of October. That doesn't make sense. We had mushrooms on the farm in the second week of October, which was absolutely crazy. You'd see mushrooms growing on the farms after a very warm summer uh, for, for a while. But um, there's quite a lot happening, yeah, quite a lot. And, and one of the things this morning, early this morning, we got up, the, the, the four of us, we went to a farm. Uh, Siobhan, excuse me, I forget her surname. Prendergast. Prendergast. And, and she just walked us around the farm and, and was kind of showing us what has happened on her farm in the last, we'll say, 15 years or so. Um, and she spoke about the storms getting worse coastal erosion, picking up lambs and putting them into the water. We went into one of her fields where the coastal erosion, the ferocity of the storms is just eating into the land. Um, heaps of land going into the sea is what she said. But then also, Lisa, you encouraged her to show me this, this barn and this, the shaking wall of the barn that she experienced. Just explain that because it was a very, very visual way of understanding the kind of challenges that farmers are facing here on the peninsula. Yeah, so as part of the Creative um, Climate Action Fund, we've been doing a creative project uh, with farmers on climate change. And my first visit to Siobhan's farm was early in February. And she was showing us this 
this big shed, you know, where all her cattle are stored over the winter. But because of the way the winds are coming now, you were talking about a big shed and it's all held down with ropes and they were putting, you know, attaching the, the roof of the shed onto gates. And she was describing how she had all the cattle inside in the shed and they really didn't know whether the cattle were safer inside or outside because they didn't know if the shed was going to come down. Because, Dinny, you showed us this morning when we passed the neighbour, um, their new shed came down in the same storm. That wall was, um, that wall was blown in. So it is, it is about, you know, sometimes when we talk about climate change, people think about, you know, global warming and, and the, the temperatures rising. But I think it's the extreme weather events, certainly with the 10 farmers in our project, it's the extremity of the events that's really what's causing the problem because people can't plan. You know. And we'll, we'll get on to the project yeah. in, in a minute. Tommy, I, you have a beautiful farm, sandwiched between two dairy farmers up the hill, a big strip of land. Um, have you seen changes on your land? Yeah, absolutely. <coughs> um, I suppose one of the things, we, we have a, a little dune slack between myself and, and my neighbour, and <coughs> the dune slack is basically an area of uh, kind of lower land, but it's sand dunes and it's dry, and it's, it, it, will, it, it will actually fill with water at certain times when the water table rises in the winter. And <coughs> what we saw last year is that it, it filled very late in the year for maybe a few days. It, I suppose when I was a kid, it used to fill for the whole winter, and you could go down there, you know, it would, it would freeze over and we'd be ice skating and stuff like that. That's gone now. It's gone for 10, maybe even 15 years. Um, there's none of that. It doesn't fill up now. It's totally inconsistent. It fills at certain times. It filled very early this year, but it's nearly gone already. It's, it's, I was down there yesterday. So, it, you know, these kind of inconsistencies, we're, 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 seeing, we're seeing them in the farms. You're seeing more rainfall. I mean, we have a monitoring system now as part of a Pluto's project that Dinny and I and Lisa are involved in and we measure rainfall uh, and you can see the kind of extreme rainfall events that are happening and the extreme winds that we're getting. The peninsula itself, because we're out on a limb here, is it more exposed, we'll say, than a normal inland area like we'll say in the town even of Tralee. You go five miles west and the, you know, the wind is going to be a lot stronger. So you go then towards the edge of the peninsula and it's stronger again. And you're, what we're seeing is that because of these extreme wind, uh, uh, these weather events, you're getting really strong winds over a short period often, but like they're happening more frequently and they're stronger. So, I mean, it, it is happening. And I mean, you don't have to be a genius to, to, to see it. You know, it's, it's there every day. Dini, you, you're like a... Um I don't know, the equivalent of a top social media influencer here in the, in the peninsula, like all the farmers, you know everyone, the farmers listen to you, you listen to them. Can you give us a sense, if, if it's possible, uh, about how they are feeling about the climate crisis and how it is directly impacting their farms here in the peninsula? Yeah, it's certainly making a massive difference in, you know, uh, something like slurry storage alone with all that extra rainfall um, it means the animals have to be taken off the land earlier. That's causing quite quite an economic uh, effect. So there's, you know, all the all the the slurry would have to be stored from the 15th of October till the 15th of January. But within the next four years, there's next a week going on to that every year. It was the 8th of October this year. It'll be it'll be a month longer. So that means there's a massive investment on every farm to cater for that. We have a fabulous feasibility study done on an anaerobic digester. To me, at my age, it would make far more sense to invest in an anaerobic digester to take that extra slurry. We'd have a biogas out of that. 
this is the way my mind thinks. I, I keep going around in circles, but like it, it's, it's definitely an answer that will cater for the environment, the impact of that. You have food waste, and you, you would have a biogas out the other end. Possibilities for the small abattoir, awful from that. I think there's a community approach needed on that here. Because one of the things that's so interesting here is that you are, you've come together in various forms. It seems to be centered around the Dingle Hub and that you're trying to find a way as a geographical entity to address both the energy needs to try and switch away from fossil fuels and to see about the future for farming here on the peninsula. Um, you've been involved in looking at the dairy sector, haven't you, Dini? Just describe what you've been doing from a point of view of energy. So I, um, I was involved originally with an ESB project, a pilot project run by the ESB looking at different technologies in West Kerry. And from that, I completed an energy mentor course. Uh, as I completed the course, I set up the West Kerry Dairy Farmers SEC. Uh, through the SEAI, we've got funding, we've completed an energy master plan. So we know right now that we can, we can, energy and carbon are very closely related by reducing our energy efficiency and providing renewable power. We can pull down our carbon footprint. There's a group of 120 dairy farmers involved. We, we're actually doing audits on the farms right now to, to see how many PVs we can deploy, how many heat exchange units. When we have that completed, we can go out and tender as a group. Uh, the strength in numbers, you keep the people together, you keep the farmers together. It's a bottom-up approach. I feel it's uh, every dairy uh, every dairy co-op in the country have been on to us, even with the last week. Will we go and speak to them? How did you do it? Can you help us do it? Bottom-up approach, absolutely vital. And coming together, you have a certain amount of buying power as well. Exactly, yeah. 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 Lisa, one of the things, certainly in the recent history, people have said about us all not being able to really grasp what's happening with climate change has been really that it's quite hard to imagine what we're talking about. And yet here we are this morning visually seeing exactly what we're talking about. Um, can, you, can you explain a little bit about how you're a farmer and you're an artist, but how the creative project that you are doing to describe what it is, but also how that helps and has helped farmers to imagine both what they're, what they're dealing with when they're dealing with climate change and what the, the alternative future could be if they're able to manage it. Yeah, I suppose I really believe in the power of creativity and I think that's what's really nice about the Creative Climate Action Fund because it gave communities the opportunity to work with artists. So out of the 15 funder projects, there's only two actually working with farmers. So we're really lucky here in the Dingle Peninsula to have that. And I think, I don't know about the rest of you, but I think sometimes when you, when you hear about climate change, our instinct can be just to go, oh God, I don't want to think about it, I don't want to talk about it because it can be really scary. And there's this thing called solastalgia, you know, the sadness, the absolute sadness. Like I've always grown up on farms and lived on farms and it makes me really sad to see, like Dinny says, the lack of bees or the lack of birds or the moths not there at night time as we were talking earlier. So it can be really sad, but I feel like that sadness is just disempowering. Do you know, even I'm sad and, and overwhelmed, I don't do anything because I don't know what to do. So what's lovely about this project is here we are working with 10 farmers who decided they wanted to do something and they weren't necessarily on the road to transition at all, but they felt like they needed to do something. And, and rather than us all kind of getting stuck in the problem, so we started with listening to farmers and saying, what are the issues like Siobhan's shed or Aidan growing vegetables, but his land is underwater for most of the winter on the Maharese. 
and we started looking at the problems and then we were like, okay, well, here are all the issues. What are the solutions that you see? So um, Katrina Fallon, who's the manager of the project, invited us over to her house one night and we all sat around and literally everybody said how they felt about it, but what they wanted to see happen. And they either drew or they wrote. And then I took all of those drawings and writing and made a massive drawing with all of the farmers' solutions about climate change and what they would like to see happen. But what was really interesting about it is there's a certain amount, yes, that farmers can do themselves, but it really needs systemic change and it needs support from government level as well. So a lot of the changes are really costly but at least we could see them now. We could see the, the biofuel tractors, the retrofitted houses, you know, the, the, it's, it's, but it's a, it's a costly affair, so it's, but it's good to see. And if you can, briefly, can you describe that, that visual? What, what's on that map? I mean, you've showed it to me, it's pretty amazing, but just what is it that they see? So what, what I suppose we were looking at was, if you'd imagine there's a drawing and on top of the drawing is what happens inside the ditch. So what can a farmer do on their own land? So things like breeding more efficient cattle they were talking about, the, the heat pumps, the biofuel tractors, as I said, using maybe the heat recovery systems, all of those brilliant things um, could happen inside and um, looking at growing our own food was really important for everybody. But then they were saying, well, there's, there's, farmers can do all these things and get into incredible debt doing them, but outside the gate, we really need that closed, um, sort of the circular systems. So we need consumers to be linking with farmers, and we need a co-op. You know, there's no abattoir in the Dingle Peninsula, so all of the animals, for anyone, say, using, using meat or processing meat, the meat has to go, the animals have to go out of the peninsula to get, um, to get processed. And that causes fierce stress on the farmers, on the animals, and, and everything else. So we were looking at how could you have maybe a co-op, and then how can you link, as you said, there's over a million visitors come to the Dingle Peninsula every summer. And where is the connection between the food and the farm? And is there a way of encouraging and supporting the restaurants and the hotels to be linking with the farmers like Dinny or the sheep farmers so that they're using that lamb or those vegetables and that the, there's a really high quality product in the Dingle Peninsula that's linking tourism with food. So there's loads of ideas. Tommy, um, you keep Dexter cattle, these little gorgeous little miniature cattle that are very, very tasty. Um, <laughs> But, but I suppose there's, there's a kind of unique proposition here, isn't there? Because there's 15,000 or so on the census on the peninsula. 1.2 million visitors a year. I mean, I, I can't even imagine that number of people coming to the peninsula. It's incredible. But the proposition there is obviously a huge amount of potential markets for local food in an area where, you know, 15,000 people is a lot, but you're not going to build a lot of businesses on the back of that. Absolutely. I mean, yeah, I, I mean, like a lot of things in my life, I got into Dexter's through default rather than, than design. Um, uh, when my neighbour saw them coming on uh, into the farm, he said, the little feckerines, he used to call them. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, yeah, I mean, there's huge, like, w with the Dexter animal, and I, I've learned this over the last seven or eight years since, since, I have, since I've had them. Uh, they're a really sustainable animal. They eat up to you know, a third less than we'll say a big conventional European breed would eat. You can practice things like rear uh, conservation grazing with them because they're, they're up in, 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 in uh, hilly areas. They don't have a, a large footprint. They're a lighter carcass of an animal. Plus you have the marbling through the meat, <clears throat> which is a unique product in itself. There's very few breeds have that marbling through the meat. You get great taste from it. And as Lisa alluded to there, you know, if, if we did have an abattoir on the peninsula, where we could, you know, produce this as some sort of cooperative system together with the, the cooperation of local chefs and, and restaurateurs. If we could, uh, you know, process the animals, we'll say, on the peninsula 
um, and apologies to all the vegans, but uh, you know, it, it's it's you know, there's a system. They have a great life. That's the other thing. Animal welfare with these, because they, you know, they're they're in my farm certainly. There's a, a, a very strong animal welfare uh, element to everything we do with the Dexters, and during their life, they're they're treated. You know, absolutely, they have a fantastic life. But if we did have an abattoir, they'd have that extra. You know, that that, that lesser of a distance to travel, um, less stress on the animal. When, you, when the animal is, is slaughtered, you can hang the animal for a longer period of time. Like my own um, butcher, we got one slaughtered ourselves a couple of weeks ago for our own use. And he rang me there a couple of days ago and he said, listen, I need to get it out of the fridge. He said, I have a big demand. I said, keep it in. You said you keep it for five weeks. So I had that. He said, OK, I'll keep it for another week. So I had that conversation with him. You couldn't have that with the bigger companies, you know. So we can keep that animal for longer. It's a much better taste, a higher quality product. Re reducing supply chains, that's what we should be all about on the Dingle You Peninsula. need that infrastructure in the middle between you the do. farmer and Absolutely. the other. One thing that was very interesting, we were speaking about it this morning, that I must say I didn't quite ever appreciate was the Maharese. I mean, in many ways, it was the centre of vegetable production f for Ireland, wasn't it, in the past? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, Maharese at one point, I think in the 60s and uh, we'll say early 70s, potentially would have um, provided the Dublin market with a third of the vegetable supply. Um, so, you know, that little tombolo, you know, joining the islands with the mainland, that sandy soil, it's fantastic for growing things like onions and, and carrots. And, uh, you know, th there, was, there was even the local farmers who lived outside of that, including myself, would, not me, but my, my, my ancestors, they would always have said a better tasting, uh, better tasting vegetable from that area, you know. And but yet. It, and yet, yeah. And yet. The last vegetable farmer, Aidan O'Connor, Lisa, is, is really struggling. Like it, we've, we've made 10 films, as you know, so we're, we're screening them next week in, in the Laskett Centre. We've made 10 films with farmers from the peninsula as part of this project. And Aidan, um, Aidan, I'd love to share his preview with Ella in advance. But it's just, it's just so amazing to see these amazing, like Aidan has been growing vegetables since he was a child and all his family grow vegetables on a beach, as he says himself, like they're on sand. Um, and, and they just can't compete anymore because between climate change, he talks about uh, snow coming in. In the film, he talks about snow coming in and covering his field of turnips and he thought that was bad enough and next thing these birds arrived from Scandinavia and cleared the whole field out he never saw those birds since but he lost 30,000 euros that year and 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 to me that just breaks my heart because he's such a wonderful farmer and those skills we'll never get again if they're gone they're gone and only one percent of farms in Ireland grow vegetables so when I hear people talking about um, you know vegan diets vegetarian diets flexitarian diets let's equip farmers to grow the food that you need to eat because at the moment there is no movement to support farmers like one percent growing vegetables when we know that the demand globally is for a plant-based diet as well so we just need to why are we not growing food not fodder you know why are we not growing beans why are we not growing cereals that humans can eat and people like Aidan should be supported as opposed to being put out of business I mean that really in a climate crisis is in my mind the scandal that we should all be talking about and doing something about. And he has left the business. Dinny, yeah. do you think the Maharese will survive? I mean I'm thinking about literally physically in terms of climate change. It's going to be under awful pressure, absolutely. Maharese is predominantly sand. So the big storms take quite a chunk of that away. All the, it's eroding the, the, the Maharese all the time. Uh, the people have, they have a great mentality towards it and there's quite a lot of work being done down there by Martha Fowle and quite a, there's a great community of people there. Um, so yeah, 
they're resilient. It's, it's the climate. The climate will, will do its best to beat them, but look, hopefully we'll be able to find a few solutions to help protect uh, the, the sand dunes and the whole, the whole area. Tinny, do you have a vision of where you would like the peninsula to go? I in do the indeed. Uh, yeah, I suppose with these group of people here, my colleagues in the Dingle Hub, um, I think in the EIP, which would be European, European Innovation Partnership, would address all these issues. Um, it may be, in my mind, it's probably too big. It would address the emissions on the farms, anywhere these EIPs have been done, in the Bodden, in the Bride and Waterford. Uh, there's so many others, the Black Stairs through the, through the country. There's so many, everywhere they've been done, they've, they've tackled all these things. And you just, you have to include so many other things like heritage, um, names of monuments. Um, there's a different story in every village. Um, all these things are going to be lost without being documented and, and written down. Uh, low hanging fruit to the farming community, the smallest of things, keep a beehive. We, as a dairy farmer now, we're all being told to set these multi-species grasses. I'm fine with that. I've set clover grasses at home. They won't last if you haven't the bees to cross-pollinate them. So we need a beehive. Every second farmer needs a beehive. I'm not too bothered about the honey. I'll give it away, but I want the bees. That's one little thing. Set wildflowers for, to give them food. There's quite a lot of work could be done with trees, and there's quite a lot of work could be done with hedges and, and renewable electricity. There's so much we could do. We heard last night, Tommy, there was a meeting and there's going to be two um, electrical, uh, electric buses coming in to the peninsula imminently, I gather, um, because it's both agriculture and transport which are the heavy energy users at the moment. So there is this transition and you can imagine this branding of the peninsula as being the most sustainable part of Ireland for people to visit and to experience. Yeah, and the, brand, the branding is important. I mean, I, I, I would never have been an advocate of, of marketing, always steer clear of it where possible, uh, turn the ads off, you know, whatever. But, um, it, you know, at the end of the day, the story, to tell the story is so important. And, and uh, you know, we've had these conversations with dozens of people up and down the country, you know, in fact finding, and it's the same story keeps recurring. The farmer, the connection that the farmer has with the consumer is not strong enough. You know, we, we had Donald Sheehan from the Bright Project telling a very good anecdote the, uh, the other day. He said, you know, the, the dairy farmer gets his milk picked up from the, he's not even there, it gets picked up at four o'clock in the morning. He, he doesn't have any connection to the customer. Then you've got the guy who has to go to, on the other extreme, has to go to the markets and sell his story to the same customer every week. And it, it, it's too much for him and he goes out of business because he can't produce, tell the story and do all of that stuff. So it's that middle ground we got to reach. There has to be somebody there that's going to promote that the, far, the farmer's link with the consumer and with the restaurateur and the chefs and all of that. So it, it's that link and it's been done other places. It's been done in, in the States. There's very good examples of it and, and even in parts of Europe where they have a very strong food culture and links with, with food that's been done. But we, we have a fantastic story to tell in the peninsula here, a story of sustainability uh, and a story of innovation. And, you know, by working through the hub and through other, uh, other bodies, you know, we can tell that story to the consumer and we can share, I suppose, as, as we were saying earlier back in the in Siobhan's farm, you know, we can share a story with everybody, you know, and that's, that's what it's about. And do you see the backbone of that from a business perspective being the cooperative model 
the sort of the, the, the commons, the, the, the shared business model? Potentially. Or not. I mean, in the States, they've, they've tried other things, even things like limited companies. I mean, a cooperative, sometimes you, you have to, it takes all the shareholders have to make decisions. It can take longer to turn things around. Uh, you know, there, there, there are examples of limited companies, you know, with, we'll say, a limited number of shareholders being able to make decisions quicker. Like, there's no, uh, I suppose we haven't got to that point yet where we've, we've discovered, you know, the, the silver bullet in terms of, you know, which way to go on it. But they're the kind of things that we're, we're trying to probe to find out, you know, what is the, the best way of, of approaching this. We'll say they have a food hub in, 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 um, in Fire East, which is, we'll say, halfway between here and Killarney. And that's a good start. It's a good start in terms of promoting local food businesses and trying to help them out. There's artisanfood.ie. That's, an, that, that's another way of competing with the bigger companies and trying to promote the, the small artisan producer. And that's, that's very important because the artisan producer, they have to do the same regulations as the big guy. You know, They're, They have the same rules and they have the same overheads in terms of the costs of doing this, and yet they're very small companies, and it's pushing these companies to the edge, and they're finding it hard to survive. So we have to find a framework to allow those companies to compete. I mean, during the, we'll say, European Brexit negotiations, we heard all about level playing fields. We need a level playing field for those companies, to be smaller companies, to be able to compete along with farmers and have a framework that will, will work. And that's what we're trying to probe we're working with Fulcher Ireland at the moment through the hub on a project that, 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 at a small scale level that we're trying to work on something to that effect. And Lisa, the farmers that you worked with, and you spent so much time with them, you really had a very deep insight into their, how they're thinking and how they're feeling. Um, one of the things you said to me that I thought was interesting was, because you know, you'd imagine from the outside all the farmers know each other here, they're always talking to each other, but you were saying that this project that you did enabled farmers to, to connect in a new way around this issue of the climate crisis and to have to speak it in their own language and express how they were feeling. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we started the project back in December, really, but January we went out in farms and sure it was still COVID. So people were so isolated, you know, so we were having milk and tea and down in cow sheds and stuff like that when we started off. But what we didn't anticipate, I think Katrina, who runs the Green Arts Initiative and is based here on the peninsula, I think we were all surprised at how much it meant to people to feel they were part of a bigger community on this. And, you know, that, you know, you can be doing something really good in your farm. I think of the O'Dowds out in Castlemaine and all the biodiversity. But what's been amazing is having that mirrored back to you. Like, you know, they were laughing at me in the beginning. I'd say this artist come with her sketch pad and sketching on the farms. But when, when I was coming back to them, do you not know you see these beautiful stone walls with all this biodiversity? Or, oh, look at your oak trees. And they were like, oh, we'll just give her some, you know, entertainer. <laughs> but actually, but then we, we ended, we didn't plan on making these films. But I was like, you're just so amazing. We need to make these films and, and show what you're doing. And for them, they've only just seen them in the last two weeks and none of them have seen each other's films. And what they keep saying again and again is, that having to seize the opportunity of your land through someone else's eyes. And I think that's what's lovely about this being part of other voices. We have all these musicians and singers and writers. And there's been a lot of people calling us to take, take up the challenge of responding to the climate crisis. And what's been lovely about this is, as an artist, working with farmers and just by my eyes being able to see things and reflecting it back to them through drawing or through film or through photography, that, in, that, I think, is actually transformative because we can be so isolated and so ground down with the, the milk and, and the jobs and the everything else. I think what it's done is given a real buzz. 
Like we Greek crack. I mean, we're on now, it's ridiculous. We're on WhatsApp all the time and there's always <laughs> stuff going around. But you, just the sense, like I hope, I feel we'll all be friends for life after this. It's been an extraordinary, I hope so. It's been an extraordinary journey and I feel so inspired. And as I said, we didn't plan to make this amount of films, but mm. it just seemed like the only way to honour the amazing work that these people are doing. And they did, they certainly wouldn't have thought a year ago they'd be standing in front of a camera going about the biodiversity on their farms and this, that and the other things. But I think it's it's like we've created a lens for people to see things differently. Lisa whipped myself. out her camera this morning and Dinny just said, because Siobhan said, Lisa, not another photograph. <laughs> and Dinny just said, look, I just learn, just smile. <laughs> just smile to move Power on. of art. <laughs> You've been farming since 1987. When your father died, you took over the farm at a young age. Um, can you describe or explain uh, how this new dynamic uh, <laughs> that has come in has changed things? Has it changed things in terms of how the farmers are, are seeing their future, imagining their future? It has. It's been absolutely fabulous. There's great credit due to Katrina and Lisa. Um, when you look at their fabulous wall in the ploughing match, it's about 35 metres long to take you half an hour to go from one end to the other. But the beautiful drawings and all the, everything we've spoke about here was encaptured on that wall. From, you know, the farmer standing by the gate with his daughter looking in. What will the future be like? Little things like that, like, you know, very good. Yeah. And he turned up at a very good moment in the ploughing when it's, it rained. And, and Tanya and I were trying to deal with the, the rain. And next thing, Dinny Galvin comes. And, you know, it, it was just so gorgeous, your timing. But I think what was lovely is, that for people who don't know, we were invited by Creative Ireland to draw. It was meant to be 20 metres. It turned out to be 33-metre wall of farmers' ideas. So we interviewed 200 farmers of their ideas about the future. And it was actually quite emotional, it wasn't, to see just the level of engagement and how people want to see change. But oftentimes they're just so overwhelmed with their bureaucracy and the hoops they have to go through to do the right thing. And as you said, when you started, so many people were encouraged to get rid of ditches and get rid of everything. Oh, yeah. And, and Lisa said that one of the signs was um, sell the farm and move, move to Ibiza. <laughs> <laughs> and that everyone liked popular that. drawing. <laughs> Dini, I just want to end. I mean, I, I couldn't help notice you, you got emotional there. And, and I suppose what is interesting about you know, tapping into a, a creative side of, of all of us is that it, it, you know, the farms are so much more than just businesses. They're so much more than just units of production and all the rest. You know, they're, they're in your genes, they're in your blood, and it is an emotional thing, the future of the farm. It is indeed, yeah. Actually, look, you, you can't go out in the morning and say, I'm going to be a farmer. It doesn't work like that. It's handed down one generation to the other. It's very important. Well, thank you very much for your work, Denise. Thank you. Thank you to Dinny, Tommy and Lisa for joining Ella McSweeney in Dingle. On our next episode, we'll hear an excerpt from my live interview with the writer Sean Fay about her book, The Transgender Issue. To make sure you don't miss that or any of our future episodes, subscribe now wherever you get your podcasts. This has been a Southwind Blows production, and I'm Christopher Kassan. Thank you for joining us, and I look forward to your company next time on Ireland's Edge.